This episode is brought to you by Live, Live Musicals. Some people say that in-person musical theater is a dead medium, as far as the new generation is concerned. How can a revived production of South Pacific compete with the Atari video games and Betamax tapes that the teen set play on their 45-inch television sets? Well, do you know what musical theater aficionados say to that? They say pish posh. I'll pause momentarily before I say it again so you can send the little ones out of the room. They say pish posh. Live, live musicals are reimagining the standards we all know and love in a hip, far out way that'll finally cross the generation gap. So take your whole family on that Branson, Missouri vacation you've been promising them to see the most exciting live dramatic extravaganza since Spider-Man dropped like a planet-killing asteroid on top of a horrified New York audience. Maybe you're thinking, I've already seen Annie, but in the live, live musical interpretation of the heartwarming curly top, the giant robot invaders have never seemed more real, with Optimus Prime's massive and perhaps a little overweighted arms swinging precariously over the audience's heads. And they guarantee that when you see their production of The King and I, the highway car crash scene is something you are sure to recount to all your envious friends. When an actual fiery SUV rolled up the aisle within inches of your seat and the pitiful family inside begged for assistance. Live, live musicals is blazing the way for the sweet scene to appeal to future children of all ages with real blazes. And thank you, Live, Live Musicals, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I am doing good. I'm feeling rich. I'm feeling awesome. I'm feeling optimistic. I do not have to do a play. I know. <laughs> this is our first time in a while that we can just be with Severian in the narrative present instead of... And, and that's pretty, pretty much true for this episode, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this yeah. chapter is just Severian in his head. Pretty much. Well, let's uh, let's get on it, but let's um, I guess let's find out what everyone has to say about the wrap up of our play. Yeah, we did have some general responses and comments, and it's a lot to digest. You know, I was right, halfway yeah. hoping that somebody would come up and be like, "And now here is my version in fourteen uh, yes, pages, well yes. annotated." I don't know, guys. You just somebody <laughs> needs to write their own book. There are a lot of jokes well, about let's make a podcast doing an analysis of the analysis of the podcast. Right. Yeah. But nobody actually did it. You got to pick up the baton and do it. Don't just talk about it, man. Well, you know, the reception of this, um, of the play, our rendition of the play was kind of mixed. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of love. We had a lot of hate. Meshizik mm -hmm. on YouTube. So we got to the part of the play when, uh, Mark and I really got into it. He uh, bookmarked the time and said, 
I effing love this podcast. <laughs> Suppose I should say for posterity's sake, I did take out a fair bit of sort of the talking over the frustrated. Yes, talking over yes, it. yes. I think I threw a taste of it in at the very end, but. Yeah. Well, you can, you should have done what I always do for, for those. I just kind of do a little cut and then a little music to give the sense of <laughs> the <laughs> the time music. passing. It was right. the same thing for about five or 10 minutes. And then, yeah. Yeah. Mark hasn't talked to us since it came out. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> now well, he, he does th- have a new child that, that yeah. could be occupying his time, but it could also just be that he's angry about us. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be it. about the life changing <laughs> event. Or Listen, if he were angry about it, I trust me, you, we would hear from him. So I'm not worried about oh, yeah. that. But Shizik also says, I think I speak for the entire rereading Wolf audience when I say that uh, both in the interest of thoroughness and in order to recapture the original spirit of these lost 10 minutes, the best course. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> the best course is to go back, beginning of the play, and record another five episode series of exegetical debate on it. No. <laughs> yeah, on Facebook, Stuart Ham said, when we got to the end, he says, hey, praise be, great wrap-up, best of the bunch. <laughs> that may be just him, you know, projecting his sense of relief to have it over. Have it over, yeah, that's what I yeah. thought, too. <laughs> well, but on the downside, uh, I say on the downside, Jasper Shepard Smith says, it's quite funny, in his attempt to force a one-for-one overlay of the play in the story, James does exactly what he accuses Craig and Mark of doing found him quite manic and difficult to listen to, especially this episode. I can overlook it, though, because he's usually such a delight to listen to. (laughs) So, okay, well, (laughs) I'm not going to try and parse it. Your judgment is, I accept your judgment, and uh, we'll do my time. If he says he's going to keep coming back, then that's all that matters. Also, Adrian Ion says, I can't say I didn't enjoy this tragedy in five acts. (laughs) I mean the podcast, of course, because I still think the play is an outright comedy written by Talos, who knows where the story is going and thinks it's a joke. (laughs) Imagine watching Mel Brooks's History of the World and trying to piece the entirety of human history on it. How many tablets did Moses have? Why did he walk up Mount Sinai? Did he really lose five commandments because he was a klutz? Ah, but what if one who told the story is robot Groucho Marx? I think I kind of feel that through Talos, Gene Wolfe is purposely messing with the reader. And in the end, there's some obfuscating kind of cosmic humor at play here. Cosmic horror abounds, even here. So... Why wouldn't cosmic humor balance it? Anyway, I loved how heated things got. I was kind of hoping someone would have a Khrushchev moment, but alas, everyone was at home and slippers aren't good gavel replacements. I think he's referring to Khrushchev <laughs> saying, I will bury you. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I may have actually said that at some point. I yeah, remember well, probably got cut on the floor. So if you did, you were was probably just going back to the first chapter and thinking who was bearing what. But no, the the whole point about it being comedy, I think, is right. And we spent so much time sort of in the weeds of the play that, yeah, we we didn't step out and 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 really see if the whole sort of slapstick, sort of tongue in cheek aspect of it was the point more often rather than just part of the sort of veneer of, of how these things. It's kind of hard to get away from that. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah of course, if it's a, if that's the whole point, then. 
yeah, you, then you're missing it by paying too much attention. It's like trying to tear apart a joke, right? Yeah, and it also just becomes hard to know. Like I could see that um, definitely as something he'd be doing. It's also the trick though is just that's like what the the chapter itself is like three times as long as the next longest <laughs> chapter or something in the yeah. whole book. So um, yeah, and and there's so many suggestions of things in there that that I don't feel like I could easily dismiss it that much. Nonetheless, I still feel like yeah, one thing we didn't really take into account quite as much was what it means for Talos to be writing this. Um, even, even though, like I said, there were so many times I would agree with Mark, like one thing we didn't really do well, even though I think I tried to start at the end, but, but is really like, okay. And that's filtered through Talos. What does that mean? Right. Right. And so, and that's a big question. Like, and if you just kind of dismiss it as like, Oh, but Talos just doesn't really pay attention. And so the truth mm -hmm. comes through. I don't know. I mean, um, or, or even if he is just making a whole joke about everything because he believes Baldi's way of, you know, there's some other thing that's happening. Maybe, you know, it's just, yeah, it's a still a, it's a big question, but it's such a cipher as it is. Well, I think Adrian Ion's uh, basic take on the play is from Rain Man, where, you know, um, Raymond is going around uh, repeating the who's on first routine over mm -hmm. and over and over and tom cruise says at last it's not a riddle it's a joke yeah, <laughs> yeah i like that <laughs> i always did wish there was a history of the world part two by the way that was always my favorite <laughs> favorite mel brooks movie <laughs> well that would spoil the joke wouldn't it yeah <laughs> he could have done a history of the world part three and then yeah. just <laughs> <laughs> so let's see uh, jeremy sheets says, I have some thoughts about the play, but I think I need to start my own podcast and bring some guest stars on it to figure it out properly. Actually, just need to listen to it again. But in the end, I come back to why would Talos write it? Wow. I tried to help. I think I know, but what are you going to do? And also, Adrian DeForest says, I have only ever been able to picture Talos as Autark as the tiny king from the Wizard of Iz. That's kind of close to what I always imagined, too. Also, since the Autark is watching it, it means all the Autarks are watching. So maybe Talos is doing a different impersonation in each scene. The confusion between Jahi and Meshian in the torture chamber, along with the whole um, same changes as the other one, but like less... This feels like the result of a quick script change that was necessary when Dorcas showed up unexpectedly at their first performance. Because Talos wasn't expecting deaths number one, some of the bits of the play seem inexplicable because they still point to an earlier first iteration of the script. Hey, 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 I like that. <laughs> I think this is also to remind the reader to watch for the same thing as we read the novel, where the claw and all that comes with it is making Severian and others miss cues, step all over each other's lines and improvise throughout. Hmm. Uh, says Craig says, does that Giel ever address the reader directly? And he says, this is not something to dismiss out of hand. Someone who knows earth well should really check. <laughs> well, one day we will, right? Yeah. That was about Gabriel, I think. Right. About right. Yeah. Gabriel but, is that killed is, does, does, yeah. Anyone does Zadkiel ever flood? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, it seems like one place to 
look at that would be in the river between the worlds where it's a little fairy Zadkiel. I don't know. But yeah. Well, it could yeah. be little fairy Zadkiel, but I'm not sure that I don't, yeah, I don't remember. had really imagined that. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see. Uh, Scout Savar says, has anyone noted the thematic resonance of the green man with the Garden of Eden? Humankind reattaining an ideal state, becoming one with plants, reentering the garden? Well, yeah. Well, it is kind of a paradise, right? Yeah. I hadn't really thought of that before, but that seems like it has to be right in a certain sense. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, in that case, humankind becomes the garden. Mm -hmm. So, and also uh, Christopher Taylor says, well, that was a marathon. You did have me briefly wondering at the beginning what my long son name would be before I realized, of course, that I've already got one. (laughs) On Reddit, he's Pantopsilus, which is, I guess, some kind of genus of spider. I should also note that it was not me who suggested the significance of Jahi's jewelry. I I don't know who did. Sorry. I should probably look that up. Uh, One thing that I think does require more discussion is how the play was supposed to end. We know there was at least the sketch of an ending because the dramatis persona refers to the characters who seemingly never appear. In that light, I would push back on Craig's statement that the play never tells us if the arrival of the new son will be successful. Because said tally of of personae uh, implies that it does. He's got a good point. I didn't even think about that. We didn't come back to look at the, the characters in the play. It might also be worth wondering why the Inquisitor and the Familiar exist as separate characters. It does further support the idea that the reason the torturers are supposed to ignore anything clients might say to them is that historically, at least, the results of torture were analyzed by some kind of monitor. Whether in the time of the shadow of the torturer, such monitors were listening via some sort of remote recording, or whether the degradation of process had led to their disappearance, I could read either way. On the other hand, Talos does seem to have an interest in giving every player a role in every scene. When Nod is asking whether the figures on the Clepsydra move by water action, I read this as another of the play's jokes. Jahi is doing a goofball physical comedy act of freezing in place and trying to disguise herself as a statue. Nod is being sarcastic. That's pretty good, yeah. And he says, finally, for now, the misogyny question was briefly raised again in relation to the familiar's snark. I haven't got much interest in or qualifications for arguing the point one way or the other, but Wolf does seem to have this habit of falling into the slightly old-fashioned American sitcom-style mode of presenting men and women as antagonists. Well, you know, as a married man, I can assure you that men and women do our own part in Uh, keeping that stereotype going. (laughs) Most notably, we know he likes to be ambivalent. Rose the Graced is perhaps the one that raises my eyebrows the most. I don't know anything about Wolf's personal life. I don't know if these were meant to be anything more than jokes, but I don't know, dude. (laughs) That is is pretty much the best sum up of the play. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, good questions there too. I mean, the 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 point about how much of the action was more for getting characters in there on stage, like for the sort of dramatic 
seen. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, the general point about the the new son for being there as a character, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm not. I wasn't horsing around. I do really think I came away from this with a lot of more understanding about what's going on. Um, good luck so far convincing anyone that I'm right, but I'm going to take that up in the summary. I'm not done talking. It's all right, man. You know, like when we first did the whole first Severian extra episodes and whatnot and had Mandos, we had a whole lot of people being like, there's no way this stuff is right. <laughs> yeah. And some people and did then, come around over time. And yeah. then over yeah. time, over time. So you never know. So. Yeah. We should come back at some point and be like, where are we with, with those? So what, <laughs> what version do we find more? I know, I think you've been much clearer about it, but yeah, what version do I find more likely or not? But yeah. I guess that's kind of in my nature. I'm always going to settle on a particular story when it comes out, and then I'm just going to ride that until the horse drops. So, <laughs> but it was fun. It was, it, it was, was, it was difficult. I'm glad, was I'm fun. glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. Um, yeah. it, it uh, is illuminating, and I think I'm going to address it in the, next few chapters also i'm going to apply what i learned and see if i can do some theory jenga to uh, resolve some questions very cool yeah definitely the hardest part of this whole thing that we've done so far for me at least i mean oh yeah yeah i mean i think we anticipated that but yeah it definitely ended up being the hardest sort of intellectual exercise of just trying to wade through so much stuff yeah you know we uh on Twitter, Hugo nominated author Adrian Tchaikovsky. <laughs> we, we had said that most people, you know, just kind of skim the play after the first read. Mm -hmm. He says, what? People don't reread the play? <laughs> Believe it or not. Yeah. Well, I'm quite sure there are plenty of times I did not reread it at all. Uh, yeah, I've, I always take a shot at it, but I've never, you know, drilled in this hard. It's hard when it, I don't know what it is. It, it helps to talk about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Once I'm talking about it, even though, you know, maybe I'm not hearing things that just ring for me, just the idea of struggling with it with someone really helped me open it up, you know, open yeah. the eyes. It's harder to just throw up your hands and walk away. I also, uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky says uh, a comment that I had made. He says, I assume by the transverse property of wolf theory Jenga is what you say to activate your superpowers. <laughs> I like that. And of course we do. <laughs> yeah, that's They're... exactly. We have to touch rings though. So. <laughs> you keep the crooks and charlatans in business, babe. But do you appreciate your patronage? And for our Patreon thank yous this time, we have three new journeymen, Travis M., Mind Blaster, and Matthew Escalante, who we met at the Shadow of the Con. And we have two new master patrons, Dan Zaz and Eric Pride. And remember, you can pay for the whole year where you get all the first year stickers in one big go, which is pretty cool. So again, thank you to everyone at Patreon for helping out. And we even have a small little new thing for you there this time. We're going to start doing something a little bit different going forward. At the end of every 
episode, we're going to add a little bit of a conversation, like probably about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. Well, who knows how long it'll take, but something extra at the end of every episode where we'll talk about something we're reading. Maybe it'll be an uncollected wolf story. I think that's what we're going to do the first time, but it'll always appear at the end of every episode after the bloopers and outtakes. And this time you'll be able to hear it for everybody. But in the future, you'll only be able to get this special extra content on the Patreon site if you are a patron. We love all of you equally, but some people we love more equally than others. And so this is for them. Everybody will get to hear it this time, but it's really just a placeholder. It's nothing, I don't know. It's probably nothing that's really special, but hang around after the bloopers and outtakes. That's where everything will be on the Patreon site when you're listening there. All right, so let's um, let, let's go rushing into this chapter and then kind of walk around <laughs> musing together <laughs> in good. our own heads. Yeah. We're even going to start off with an actual chapter title that's different from the last five episodes. Crazy. I, I, people won't know what to do with that. Chapter 25, The Attack on the Hyroduels. Ah, we've come to the end of the play at last, Craig. I know it's nice to say a new chapter name. Yeah. <laughs> and we know it's the end of the play because it ends the way it always ends, with Baldanders attacking the audience. Yep. And Severian and first-time readers assume that dim-witted Baldanders did not realize this play was not expected to end with a terrified audience fleeing so the troop can pick up dropsies, as Talos calls them. Uh, Talos failed to carefully instruct Baldy that this would be different from the various performances that, uh, you know, they've been giving along the guile north and south of Nessus. Before we address the actual reasons for why Baldy did what he did, uh, let's go over what he did. Uh, the events of the play last episode ended with Nod freeing himself from his chains. Yep. And what's kind of cool is that we say it, the play ends with Baldy going out, but actually Severian gives us a little bit more here about what happens a little background a little context mm -hmm. before he baldanders actually goes and wrecks it all up so yeah yes yeah, Severian says that outside of house absolute quote sounds are so easily lost against the immensity of the sky and i would counter that this play is not being performed under the immensity of the sky it's being performed in a slight hollow but let's not get picky uh, it could be particularly shallow hollow but Severian can see Baldanders pretending to struggle with his chains, and he can also hear someone in the audience talking during the performance, which, by the way, in current times is considered very rude. <laughs> uh, but this conversation, this chatting, someone uh, is discovering significances in the play that Severian had never guessed, and in addition, significances that Dr. Talos, I would say, had never attended. <laughs> and yeah, and yeah, it was me. And that <laughs> is to say that he can hear, you know, you and me and Mark uh, recording the podcast. Yeah. And, and it's a good little jab where he's like, haha, you guys are all wondering what the hell that was all about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you're yeah, probably he must all have wrong. known everyone was going to, people were going to come up with all kinds of stuff that he did not intend, even if mm -hmm. he, though he, I think he did intend something. Oh yeah. yeah. But it's intended to be, yeah, odd. Very yes, odd. Right. Yeah. Very much. Uh, the Herodules, uh, the BFO Herodules are watching this play, which is about Earth's 
past, or at least some of it, uh, and therefore about their future. That's what I think. So they're arriving at this play after talking to Severian in Baldander's castle at the end of Sword of the Lictor, right? Or maybe they've done made some other stops, hard to say. And maybe he's, they're talking to Talos. I don't know. And uh, they've heard uh, what is coming from that conversation and Baldi's reasons for attacking them, and they have come prepared. And they've also picked up from Baldi and perhaps Severian about what they are going to do and what they'll give Severian and Baldanders their reasons that they decided on after the fact for why that makes sense to do that. But remember, uh, from their perspective, they've only had a single encounter with Baldanders, as far as we know. Obviously, it's possible that they've made a point to encounter him after this, which we don't actually have to resolve this for a while. But hey, we can start you know, getting ready for it. There is still the question for why they go to Baldander's castle the night that Severian arrives there. It seems like they were really only there to meet Severian, and Baldi is just someone who happens to be there then. But for them, you know, that's all past. They left the castle. They proceeded to the play, tipped off who knows who. Uh, perhaps Zakios given them travel agenda. It could be. And from their perspective, maybe, you know, in, in the last one, like when at the tower, that's when they kind of say, we're done with you, Baldanders, right? Like he gets yeah. mad and he's whatever. Yeah. But maybe this play is the reason why that happens, right? Because of maybe because of what Baldanders does here, that's why they come to his castle later and be like, all right, look, because of what is going to happen, we were, you know. But the, wait a minute, that, but that doesn't, but that's, doesn't work for well, their chronology, right? That's the thing though, right? Because they... I never understand, like, when you're trying to get, like, how something <laughs> goes backwards with the other one. Because then I'm always like, well, shouldn't the end of the conversation for them be the first well, part? No, no, so no. how they're, could they're, we know? They're traveling like, backwards. They're not talking backwards. I know. But it's like, that's that always bugged me about Merlin in Once in Future King, too. I was like, he's well, he has to, yeah, Merlin obviously has to talk backwards all the time. Yeah, and if you yeah. notice, his spells, they're all just Latin or just regular talking backwards. So, so he's talking forward to give his spells. Yeah. yeah. But the reason I'm thinking about that, though, is because I feel like I've got a different sense of Baldanders now and what he's about to do here could be kind of proof that he's not fit to, to really be there, the one that they should be paying attention to. So but but they yeah, know so, all that really. Right. I mean, they, they know they've had the, they've had the, the uh, conversation at the, at the castle. They know Baldanders has told them that they've given him lots of help. They yeah. explain why, and then they get in their ship and they head off eventually to this play, and then they're going to go back and they're going to do all give him all that help. So why are they? That's that's where it gets weird though. Then so then like now they feel like he's as they go back and further in time, they're feeling more like Baldanders is right, and so no, I don't think so. I think I think they know why they're going to to do what they're going to do. Yeah, I, I think they would have to. So, but I, yeah. I don't know. That's just the logic. I mean, they the give the reasons for why. Backwards. They say that, that that his technology is going to be necessary in the future, right? Mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. for future, uh, I guess, you know, generations after the new sun, because there's not going to be a whole lot of time left over. Yeah. So he's going to die. He said, they, they say he's going to die by, by people who don't hoard up all this technology. And then, but then someone is going to use this technology that he's hoarded up 
they say from the past, um, which once again, that's a question of what they mean by that. Do they, Do they mean, mean his past or his their past? past or their yeah. past, right. Yeah. There, when you figure out their motivations, I think you have to consider the fact that they are driven by events in the future, which is their past. And they and everything that they've ever done, as far as Bald Anders is concerned, who doesn't seem to really understand the way things are working, um, he's treating them, you know, as if you used to do this and now you don't do these things. And yeah. he's, you know, he's treating their motivations as though they're moving along a regular chronology. But in fact, they're not. They're, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Now, that, that, which that is a big deal, I think. Um, they know what Bald Anders is going to do to the lake people, for example, when they, uh, you know, with, with all this technology in order to follow this technology and they move forward anyway. Yeah. I just wonder too, if sometimes we're being too literal about them being backwards because being Hyrule's from Yessa, they're just kind of outside of Briya time, right? Like technically it seems like the way the quarters of time work, they could just jump around like they want to because the green man talks about jumping around from time to time. Well, they right. could, but they are, I mean, they're rather emphatic that, look, this is our, if this is your, our, our first meeting, then, you know, this is, this is our last. Now they're wrong about that, right? Because they don't anticipate that Severian, and that's something else. Um, you have to think about what their, their limitations have to be. If they say, this is our last meeting, because this is our first meeting with you, Severian, they don't know that they're going to encounter him again in the distant past in earth of the new sun. Yeah. Yeah. It just, I, yeah. And I just don't know. Like, I feel like it's the Yasadis all are outside of time. Right. So, but they're, and they're not just, they're but not, not these two, not these backwards. guys. I mean, they're just hierodules, hi right? They're slaves that literally the name means slaves of the hieros. So, but being slaves of the hieros, they're, part of that world they've got well, they are part of the, the world but they, i mean they, they they start they start in yesud or they start at least on the ship i can't remember um so yeah i, I don't mean, know that's where they that's where they start but they're they're clearly um determined that the rest of their life is going to be traveling backwards mm. i don't know how it works <laughs> <laughs> i don't get how it works so i mean i get the idea of how it's supposed to work i just don't get how that actually happened. So yeah. Okay. Okay. Anyway, but that, well, I think that I've, I've come to believe that that is something that is one of the most confusing things for a lot of people. Yeah. When I think, when I read the earth list and when people talk about, Oh, well, you know, uh, bald Anders, he was, uh, he was, he's a failed candidate for the, for the new sun. And I say, well, that cannot be because everything they do with bald Anders in the past, they do with not with, intimate knowledge of Severian and the future. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, yeah, I, I get the confusion, but I find that I find it really intriguing. And it, and when I keep when I focus on that and keeping that in mind, it's very, very potentially illuminating to me about their mo motivation. Because it seems to me like if they really are going backwards in time, then them personally not having experienced the past doesn't preclude them knowing the past. No, because they've heard sense. about I mean, it, right? Yeah, they've exactly. So about the past. They've talked which, to Baldanders about the past. Yeah, which seems basically to mean that they would be, that they would literally just be kind of pulling the strings. And that's where like the whole like being outside of time thing well, is where yeah. I mean, like they, they can see the whole story at once and they know in many ways it would make you omnipotent. 
like, like but they got, where well, you wouldn't have to be working and changing and ah, well, I've just met you now. So this would change. Well, because, yeah, but you know, all everybody, once again, everybody is a unreliable narrator. So they talk to Severian, they talk to Baldarians, but they only get part of the information. Yeah. So I don't know, because it would literally mean though, that nothing they do, if they can only move backwards in time and there's only one timeline, nothing they do could actually make any real difference because they already will have done everything that they eventually well i mean that's do. but but that's getting it, metaphysical and like it, it a whole lot about how time would have to work and well yeah, exactly so, i mean you, yeah. we've got different a lot of different ways severian says that the ability to leave the universe is essentially the the ability to time travel and then but then you get master ash where he says well you know he looks like more of a, a mini worlds mm-hmm. character right yeah yeah. And then you, you then you're in the Botanic Gardens and Severian says, oh, you have to tell me how these mirrors work and how this all work. And she says, well, what do I know? Do I do, do you is that the way it works where you're from? Do that people have answers to everything? <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, I don't know. I see them as either having to be omnipotent or impotent. And neither one of those seems quite right <laughs> for how they actually act in the story. So, well, yeah. They got, yeah, they've got they've got knowledge of the future. They've got some specialized knowledge. They've got knowledge of the future. Um, but they don't they have sketchy knowledge of the past yeah all right well they haven't even technically shown up yeah (laughs) so we should keep going here oh yeah yeah so um anyway the point is that they are watching this play to get some whatever for whatever reason maybe they seem to be trying to get some veiled hints about something uh, that uh related to them that they're they're discussing you know what the play might mean which is to say you know they're trying to read this play you know the way I have been, and good luck. So um, he hears the, quote, drawling intonation of an exultant speaking. So whenever I we hear Vodalus or Thecla, we should probably imagine like a Boston Brahmin. <laughs> go, go do a, a Google search of uh, Gilligan's Island and listen to Thurston Howell III. <laughs> um, so uh, this exultant is talking about some legal case during the performance. And this guy is pretty sure that the autark is going to screw it up. Uh, so Severian is turning, quote, the windlass of the rack that is stretching Dorcas. There's one thing about that. It is a cool moment to be as a reminder that nobody really in the court here sees the autark as actually a fully powerful monarch, or at least they talk in such a way that that you know he's just another yeah well, well the exultants have a contemptuous idea of them anyway right yeah so yeah, that he is thoroughly human and not particularly yeah superpower at least well he, yeah here in the here in the house hospital he's very close so he's not mm-hmm. quite so mysterious yep. but i mean it seems like most of them probably never met him so which <laughs> is also interesting so severian is turning quote the windless of the rack that is stretching dorcas quote, letting the pall drop with a satisfying clack. A windlass is, well, you know, it's the horizontal cylinder that gets turned on the stretching machine. Imagine you have one of those winches in front of your truck with a rolled cable that you use to pull a car out of a ditch, and you, you usually see them motorized, but you can imagine them with a hand crank, and that's the way they originally were. The tube that the cable is wrapped around is the windlass. The pawl, if you have a winch with a hand crank 
The point is that you're, go you're going to turn the crank and drag the car out of the ditch and you won't be at risk of the crank getting away from you and letting the car roll back into the ditch because you have this piece that click, click, click into a ratchet at regular intervals and prevents the ratcheted crank from going backwards. Well, that's the piece that locks the ratchet. Click, click, click. That's the Paul. So he turns the crank to stretch Dorcas and he hears the Paul drop into place with a satisfying clack, clack, clack. So James, do you know that Wolf was an engineer? <laughs> I've, I've heard that. Wait, wait, listen to my descriptions in the book of the short son when he talks about the axle falling out of the journals. <laughs> so, so while he's doing that, he peeks into the audience and sees only 10 chairs at most are being used. Everyone else is standing, watching, uh, or, you know, just standing and talking because they're going to wander off somewhere, or, or maybe they just wandered into the audience. So Severian can see quote, lofty figures standing at the edge of the aisles. So probably exaltants, uh, where lofty means tall, but it could just mean nobility, I guess. And, uh, they stood at the sides of the seating area and behind it. Uh, mostly the audience is men, and there are actually more arriving while Severian is watching them. There are a few women, though, uh, wearing a particular style of dress that Severian recognizes from his one night in House Azure. They have low-cut decotage, is, uh, right? It's so hard for me to pronounce that. French. Something yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, a, it's kind of a scoop neck collar to show off some cleavage. And these, I guess, are showing a lot. They also have full skirts, some slits, some are, quote, relieved with panels of lace, which is to say that the lace is sewn on top of the skirt material. Their hair is not elaborately arranged, but it is decorated with flowers, jewels, or, quote, bright, luminous larvae. <laughs> yeah, fun detail. Right, right. Of the men... There are a lot of exultants, uh, all tall or taller than Vodalus. Maybe Vodalus is actually a, a short exultant. They are wrapped in cloaks as if they are chilly in the, quote, soft spring air. Their faces are, quote, shadowed beneath broad, brimmed, low-crowned petosises. A petosis. Petasises. Petasises. Low-crowned petasises. A petasis is a broad-brimmed hat with a low crown worn by ancient Greeks, Thracians, and Etruscans. If you put wings on it, it's the hat that Mercury wore. And even though it often looks like a World War I helmet the Allies wore, it was actually made of wool, felt, leather, or straw. It was the hat of rural people for a thousand years, from 12th century BC until the 2nd century BC. It was worn with a Chlames, uh, which is a cloak of rectangle material. I would guess the picture we should have of upper-class men in Commonwealth is of people dressed like rural ancient Greeks. That's the first thing, right? It does seem so, yep. And this is also, by the way, for Frug, this is the hat that you got excited about because you thought that's what Mycroft was wearing in Palmer's <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so uh, next, two weeks ago, when Severian was talking to Master Palamon before his exile and, quote, the first brass black fly of the new summer flew in the window. I imagined him being exiled on the first day of summer, but maybe it's not that straightforward. forward. Maybe it was actually, you know, the beginning of spring. Uh, maybe summer solstice is coming up. 
So all that is going on, and Severian is turning the ratchet on the rack. Dorcas is, you know, pretend tied to it. And Severian is looking at the audience, and he hears Baldander's chains fall to the stage, which is totally expected. And Dorcas screams to cue Severian that Nod is broken free. Severian turns to him, pulls one of the torch sconces, which he calls a flambeau, uh, to fight him off. And Severian says, quote, it guttered as oil in its bowl nearly drowned the flame, then sputtered to renewed life when the brimstone and mineral salts Dr. Talus had gummed around the rim caught fire. Uh, brimstone is sulfur. Baldanders is roaring like he's crazy, just as he's, you know, just like he's supposed to. He's drooling. His teeth are yellow. Remember, his teeth are too small for his mouth because, you know, they were formed before he started growing. His arms are twice the length of Severian's. He's reaching out with them to Severian. Yeah, this is a good passage, so we should read this one. So, what frightened me, and I was frightened, I admit, and wished heartily I had terminus est in my hands instead of the iron flambeau, was what I can only call the expression beneath the lack of expression on his face. It was there like the black water we sometimes glimpse moving beneath the ice when the river freezes. Baldanders had found a terrible joy now in being as he was. And when I faced him, I realized for the first time that he was not so much feigning madness on the stage as feigning sanity and his dim <laughs> humility of it. I wondered then how much he had influenced the writing of the play, though it may be only that Dr. Tallis had, as he surely had, understood his patient better than I. <laughs> yeah, he has to give him something to, uh, a, a role that he can really get into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's, it's also good because this is the first time, and, and I think I didn't quite realize this before, like Severian takes a moment here to flat out say, you know, I think there really was a kind of insanity beneath mm -hmm. his apparent dullness or sluggishness. And I think I had always before just assumed that Baldanders was always, you know, really smart underneath all of that. But now I feel like, no, this is where Severian's just saying this straight. He's like, nope, this is what he was like he he had a joy in being insane and yeah he was more bestial and he really was much more brutal now because he had been forced to grow so much yeah he's very different when we encounter him in earth the new sun because he puts off differently right yeah yeah but here i feel like at this point this is very much like what i was saying at the end of the last play just like nod kind of you know can't control himself and loses it baldanders is kind of not being able to really control himself anymore like that's the problem yeah. he he really doesn't have self-control and so he's become much more of a creature now is this supposed to be the end of the play i don't know i don't know i mean as far as like do we think that talus actually had a different end i'm not i don't know i mean it always seems to stop here i mean obviously he didn't intend for him to attack the audience for real but especially not the people who were supposed to well <laughs> they they did pay them before but yeah especially right. not in that moment yeah but we don't know we don't know if there was supposed to be an actual ending that showed something different right i don't know Severian never mentions it and he never at least unless i'm forgetting right. something and we're never going to find out either yeah yeah, yeah I, I don't think the goal is to scare everyone away the plan is uh, that Baldanders grabs the torch and pretends to break Severian's back, you know, like Bane did Batman. Mm -hmm. and, and Google the picture if you don't know. And that would be the end of the play. It, it's climactic in the way the the riot at Piteous Gate was a climactic end to the Shadow of the Torture, but it, it's still a, you know, a weird ending. But that's irrelevant because that's not the way the play ended. 
Paul Dandos yeah. was improvising. And just to go back to the play, like the resolution of the play would, it seems to me be, okay, who finally does get back with Meshia, right? Is it either Jahi or Meshian? Like which one of them or the Contessa, like which one of them finds Meshia and mates and has the new son like seems yeah, like that's yeah. how you would really solve what's really at stake in the play but it it never happens yeah was she gonna get away the whole point she's gonna he's gonna break her his back and then set her free yeah but we don't know yeah. we don't know and again that can also be you can read that also as dramatic suspense because we don't know if severian's gonna pass the test or what's gonna happen right. to humanity yeah, that's here oh, that's so true. that's true yeah. that's true Asperian says whether he was as mad as he pretended or was genuinely enraged at our growing audience, I cannot say. Perhaps both those explanations are correct. Yeah. <laughs> and indeed both are correct, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's the and that's the uh that's the resolution of so many conversations about this book. <laughs> When Severian meets Baldanders and the Herodules at the end of Sword of Lictor, Baldanders explains in so many words that he was frustrated with them because they used to be really helpful with his experiments, but lately, you know, they've been stingy with the information and his house burned down and they've been no help. He knows they don't care about him. He understands that they only help him because they wanted the knowledge to be disseminated to mankind. They're sort of a trio of Prometheuses. So here he's been five years shifting around, and he's in this play, quote, playing the fool while they looked on. And that's what he says in Sword. And that's why he loses it now. I've been arguing that Talos is working for Malrubius, and I suppose it's possible that he and Baldanders are working for the Rodules, uh, that they told him to make the play and to enlist Severian to perform at the House Absolute. That, that would be the simplest way, right? They knew Severian would be at the play because they were there. Yeah. Yeah, that's the simplest way. Yeah. If if you have that that kind of thing, like how how much foresight of specifics would they have given? Could be. Mm -hmm. But I I don't know. I mean, because Talos, of course, comes up with a different explanation later on where he's like, oh, I know, but that is... explanation is bonkers. <laughs> I don't know. Because but it's it's kind of saying, oh, they they were looking for a way to hide you as you as you went. Uh, yeah, I no, he said he was he knew we'll get to it. Yeah, I don't but... believe I, I, I I'll give you a spoiler. I don't believe it. I don't believe <laughs> Talos is telling the truth. I don't believe he was telling anything. So we'll just talk about that one. Yeah. But um, so the question is, yeah, does Baldanders lose it because he sees the high rows in the audience or does he lose it just because, like Severian says, he's he gets wrapped up in the moment and he can't control himself? It's so much fun to be to finally be go ahead and be insane. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And it's like pretending it's he's not urge that he's been having this whole time and so he has to just follow through with it which is in some ways nod's problem too in the story right like nod uh -huh. always says i want to become human but i can't yet and so nod is kind of like in some ways backwards like like baldanders is becoming less human the bigger he gets whereas nod wants to become more human but nod gives into that bestial side and, right. and loses his mind whereas and that's exactly what baldanders is doing but maybe because he's becoming less human with this we just don't we it's not exactly clear yeah, what no. it is that drives bald anders nuts i mean when it first happens in the play before 
it seems like, oh, it's a good little trick to make yeah, them scatter. That, that, like that's, 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 it, that's but right. that that could also be Talos just rationalizing, like, oh yeah, every time we get to this point, Baldanders loses it because he has to act. Well, we have to let we have to schedule that. For yeah, him yeah, because he's once he has to act violent, then he he doesn't act. He just. But doesn't. he wasn't. You know, here's the thing. Until he meets Severian and the waitress, he doesn't have a play. It's because it's just him and Baldanders. They've been just walking around. He's been doing a strongman act, but they must have had done something like this every time to scare everyone away. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah. Oh, no, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't know. But to me, that's the the question. And I feel like I don't know. I don't think it really is that he sees the Hyrule's. I think it is more that that he's like Severian said he had already lost it by that time before he even looked out in the audience. You think he just gets mad at him during this time, or if he's he, later, he's just making up an excuse after the fact. It might be something along the lines of Baldander's intelligence is no longer subtle enough to tell the difference between play acting and reality, and so when he has to be violent he goes nuts. He becomes violent. He has to do it in the play. That kind of fits with what we were talking about in the play with the uh, problem of growing huger and huger is that it takes away your humanity. And so if Baldanders yeah. really was making himself bigger and bigger to fight the Megatherians, then it's almost like he was sacrificing a lot of his humanity and just becoming more violent mm. like they were instead of whatever the more humane way would be there's a way to read it that way i don't know i mean it's it's never to me it's never exactly clear what it is um and and it certainly seems what, like once we know about the higher duels then you come back and look at the section and he's like oh yeah well he maybe he kind of has a right to be mad at him but <laughs> we don't know but again in his timeline they don't tell him no until later so right so instead of grabbing the torch and breaking severian's back he grabs the torch and turns on the audience, waving it at them, throwing flaming oil all over. Severian worked his sword into the play as a prop, I suppose, so he doesn't have to be separated from it. Yeah, and <laughs> Severian's going for it to bring Baldinders down, but the giant is already in the middle of the audience. The metal torch is out now, and Baldinders is swinging it like a mace, uh, remembering the, the final fight, right? Yeah, but that would be another moment where if he really is sort of just unaware of where he is, he's like, oh, I fight with a mace. I have a mace. This is my mace. But it's not. It's a torch. And so, but he's he's using it like a mace. Yeah. So someone shoots an energy pistol at him. Uh, Severian just calls it a pistol. But his clothes are on fire, but it missed his body. Some exultants have drawn their swords. And that's when... Someone, I couldn't see who, possessed that rarest of all weapons a dream. It moved like Tyrion's smoke, but very much faster. And in an instant, it enveloped the giant. Yeah, a Tyrion means purple. So the dream is like purple smoke that they can shoot at someone or control its movements remotely. Yeah, in fact, I was trying to figure out, like, is the pistol the dream? Like when Severian says someone shot a pistol at him? But I, I don't know. No, no, because his hair, his, I mean, his, his clothes really catch on fire. Oh, that's right. Because the clothes, so that's, yeah, some weird energy weapon or something yeah. like that. Because his clothes, yeah. Okay. Then he says, it seemed then that he stood wrapped in all that was past and much that had never been. A gray-haired woman sprouted from his side. A fishing boat hovered just over his head and a cold wind with the flames that wreathed him. 
Okay, so the boats are like the Eterna, right? And the flames are his burning house. The gray-haired woman, I don't know, that could be his mother. Right? Or it could or be his wife, his wife because of how long he's lived. Yeah, yep. he's lived 200 years, right? Yeah, and sprouted from his side. I don't know, sprouted from his side. could be, be his daughter. He could have been around so long. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but yeah, the fishing boat. But it's, yeah, so this is cool. So a dream, and then the way he describes it, then all that was past and much that had never been. So <laughs> yeah. that, yeah, that makes it even harder to know, right? So um, especially that cold wind that whips the flames. Right. Yeah. And how that's the other thing. It's like, this must be a substantial dream if he can feel it and like, feel the wind <laughs> and not just see flames yeah. and see them moving. Yeah. Right. So, so the weapon is one that Autark Severian seems to know about, but does not have access to. He only knows what it is said to do. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's a rare weapon. Um, maybe the Askeans have reportedly used or used once and it's said to quote leave soldiers dazed and helpless a burden to their cause in this case Baldander's just kept going uh, moving forward smashing chairs out of his way with his flambeau mace so if Baldander's isn't affected by something psychological that seems to f- you could either say either he's just super powerful and immune or he's so numb already that these things, even if his subconscious yeah. is bringing them up or something like that, they just don't bother him because, yeah, because apparently he's... regular people, it puts them, you know, they, it overwhelms them and makes them unable to do anything. Well, he's, he's pure rage, right? So mm-hmm. he's, this isn't, he's not attacking them with any, you know, kind of intellectual strategy. So if yeah. this is supposed to dull his, his ability to be, you know, involved with the world, that's not a stop to him at all. Yeah. Nothing, yeah, no illusions to overwhelm him. Yeah. So Varian, who on the Beluka there didn't care if he lived or died, and it gave him the skills to dispatch his three guards while tied up, who went on to duel with fatalistic aplomb, <laughs> uh, quickly, quote, recovered enough self-command to flee that mad flight. <laughs> but this is before he did, he saw something. Yeah. I saw several figures throw aside their capes, and, as it appeared, their faces, too. Under those faces, which when they were no longer worn seemed of a tissue as insubstantial as that of the nodules, were such monstrosities as I had not thought existence could support. A circular mouth rimmed with needle teeth. Eyes that were themselves a thousand eyes, clustered like the scales of a pine cone, jaws like tongs. Things that have remained in my memory as everything remains, and I have stared again at them in the dark watches of the night. I'm very glad when at last I rouse myself to turn my face toward the stars and moon-drenched clouds instead, that I could see only those nearest our footlights. <laughs> that is, he could only see the Cacogens nearest the footlights rather than all of them. Remember that, as Severian writes, he already knows that these are masks, but he can still remember the horror he felt at the time. Yeah. Now, that line where he says, I could only see the ones nearest us, does that suggest that there are more than our three? Well, I mean, it could just mean it could just mean he only sees two. <laughs> I mean, two? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 so vague. We don't know. But, but he, he's he thinking about three... himself. He's saying I, I, there's more than just what I'm seeing. And I'm just glad that I'm only seeing he maybe he saw like someone in the back uh, whip off his mask as well. 
Yeah, so. and but he does see three different masks, right? He has a, yeah. Well, at least I assume so, because he gives those three different things. There's the the circular mouth rune with teeth, eyes that were themselves a thousand eyes, and then jaws like tongs. Like those. Well, isn't are, this true for all of them? Is this those, awesome? I don't. I don't know. I mean, they're they're separated by semicolons, so they seem like they're separate, like jaws. Like I mean, they could all be the same thing. I don't know. I had always assumed they were each one was oh. uniquely weird and different. Well, that would but. be really cool. Um, but I always, I mean, I just thought it could. The, yeah, the way it's written. I mean, there's nothing saying that the circular mouth and jaws like tongs could be, yeah, part of the same yeah. mouth. Yeah, sure. Yeah, choose your own adventure, people. He grabs Terminus Est and he sees Baldander's freak out he turns to free dorcas but she's already beat it and he runs he says not out of fear oh no 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 but to catch <laughs> up with dorcas he searches for her like a madman running at top speed and finally exhausted slows down to a walk oh my gosh severian you lost her again <laughs> and now it's time for reflection on the differences between love and desire right yeah such a beautiful <laughs> severian wolf moment here of, oh and by the way a lot of those people were aliens and they were crazy terrifying <laughs> aliens anyway love and Women desire believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's what we get so Women believe or at least often pretend to believe that all our tenderness for them springs from desire that we love them when we have not for a time enjoyed them and dismiss them when we are sated or to express it more precisely exhausted there is no truth in this idea though it may be made to appear true when we are rigid with desire we're apt to pretend a great tenderness in the hope of satisfying that desire but at no other time are we in fact so liable to treat women brutally and so unlikely to feel any deep emotion but one as i wandered through the nighted gardens though I had not enjoyed Dorcas since we had slept in the fortress of the Demarchi beyond the sanguinary fields. Uh, that is something I think I had forgotten. Severian slept when he had made sure Dorcas was sleeping in a tent, but then he got up and chatted with Dorcas and then went on to play and went off with uh, Jolenta. So mm -hmm. he and, and Dorcas have not been intimate since way back um, the night before Agilus was executed, right? Yeah. And all of this is in the context of him. He's talking, he's describing the bitterness that he felt at this moment. So, um, and he says, yet I felt no physical need for Dorcas because I had poured out my manhood again and again with Jolenta in the Nenufar boat. <laughs> yet if I had found Dorcas, I would have smothered her with kisses. And for Jolenta, whom I had been prone to dislike, I now had conceived a certain affection. Uh, a while back, someone pointed to this passage and the one from mm -hmm. Shadow of the Torture, yeah. chapter 26 in Senate. And I think it's worth it uh, to address it here. Let's read that. I will say, I also think all of this stuff actually comments as much on Baldanders. And I'll, I'll say why at the end. I want, oh, I, oh, I yeah. definitely hear that. So, yeah. If we desire a woman, and this is from Shadow, this is from Fort. If we desire a woman, we soon come to love her for her condescension in submitting to us. This indeed had been the original foundation of my love for Thecla. And since if we desire her, she always submits, in imagination at least, some element of love is ever present. On the other hand, if we love her, we soon come to desire her, since attraction is one of the attributes a woman should possess, and we cannot bear to think she's without any of them. In this way, men come to desire even women whose legs are locked in paralysis, and women to desire those men who are impotent, save with men like themselves. So, yeah, both these passages are about the connection between love and desire. And the question was, aren't these two passages attesting opposite things? And, and I don't think so. 
initially it would seem like it because he's yeah. saying you know we 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 love least or we're least tender when we're we're in the throes of desire but then the other passage says oh no they're actually two sides of the same thing yeah yeah but, well in the early passage in shadow severian is saying if we love someone we will eventually come to desire them and this is the context of romantic love but by the same token if we desire someone over time we will feel affection for them and even love them one encourages the other this passage is, and correct me if I'm wrong, says that affection, tenderness, as Severian puts it, is not a trick to get us to have sex. The second passage is a rejection of Freudianism. Although we come to love what we desire and desire what we love, love and desire are still not the same things. And so even though he admits now that he had sex with Jolenta over and over and over, he no longer dislikes her. He feels some affection for her. And I will say the phrase that I poured out my manhood again and again, I guess, I don't want to have, know how mechanical you could get, but I don't know if that means that they went at it multiple times or if it's just a way of, of stating, I don't know. But anyway. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. It sounds like he, sounds like he, you know, he gave it a breather and then went at it again. Could be, it could also be a way of just sort of like hyperbole of, yeah whatever who knows but just um, bragging yeah um but yeah so in these passages what he's kind of getting at even in i think in in two different ways that sex always seems to at least imply love um at, at least the very possibility in the one from shadow he kind of outright says look if you have sex with somebody over and over eventually you're going to love them um the first passage in this one he says that a lot of women think they only love you when they desire you and as he says that's not true because he loves Dorcas, even though he's not horny. Right. So there's a difference there between sort of like how the base always implies the higher, right? Like the physical right. always seems to imply love or the spiritual, even you could call it. So with Baldanders, I actually think something about the opposite is happening where it's almost like by becoming more and more physical, getting bigger and bigger and focusing on becoming stronger and stronger. If he's doing that in order to supposedly fight the Megatherians, um, he's losing his intellect that by becoming bigger and bigger unnaturally, he's actually becoming also less human at the same time. So it's almost like he's growing the base thing, but it's not, it's not working like it should, because mm. I think the teeth are like a good point there, right? Like it's unnatural. Like what he's mm. doing is the teeth can't grow too. The whole thing doesn't grow. And so it becomes this unbalanced mess. Um, there might at least something in those ideas, I think, there is a way to connect that. So it's not just a complete non sequitur that all of a sudden Severian starts talking about this after that. But I mean, he certainly doesn't point to it and say, and oh, that's actually commentary on Baldanders, but it does seem connected. Well, I, you know, you, now you, now you've got me thinking about Baldanders. Here's another possibility. Mm -hmm. Here's another thing of which it might apply. Does Baldanders attack the audience because he's enraged or does he do it because he's mad? And perhaps by becoming enraged, he goes, he goes mad. And by going mad, he becomes enraged. His emotions are driven by something more yeah. instinctual, which is, is inflamed uh, by his emotions. Yeah. No, I could see that too. Like, but yeah. it's... It's it's always lesser somehow. It's it it's certainly yeah. not as 
kind of like a little quick preview of how Baldanders is not going to achieve what he wants. Right. So uh, let's see. The thiasis, it turns out, was localized to just one part of the grounds. Uh, and now Severian, in his search for Dorcas, has run well beyond that area where he is uh, deserted. Uh, Severian says that even as he writes this memoir as Autark with the memories of who knows how many Autarks available to him, he is unsure the extent of House Absolute. The maps are incomplete and contradictory. The second house, the, the part of the house absolute that the Autark and Aniri used, that's completely unmapped. This suggests the incomplete and contradictory maps of House Absolute were a security measure as well. And Father Aniri claims that he himself long ago forgot many of the mysteries of House Absolute. In wandering its narrow corridors, I have seen no white wolves, but I have found stairs leading to domes beneath the river and hatches opening into what appears to be untouched forest. Some of these are marked above ground by ruinous, half-overgrown marble steelies. Some are not. When I've closed such hatches and retreated regretfully into an artificial air still laced with the odors of vegetable growth and decay, I've often wondered whether some passage or other doesn't reach the citadel. Old Alton hinted once that his library stacks extended to the house absolute, what is that but to say that the house absolute extended to his library stacks? There are parts of the second house that are not unlike the blind corridors in which I search for Triskely. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they're the same corridors, though if they are, I ran a greater risk than I knew. Whoa. So, so, so I mean, I, the second house is time traveling. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, and the library uh, is part of the tunnels, right? And the library perhaps extends back into time. Yeah, it could well. Wow. <laughs> uh, even now, a lot of this is speculation, but Severian didn't know any of this at the time. At this point, he figured he might have completely wandered out of the house absolute ground. So he just walked all night, moving north, navigating by the stars. And as I walked, I reviewed my life in just the way I have so often attempted to prevent myself from doing while I waited for sleep. <laughs> what the heck is he been doing this whole chapter? <laughs> Literally the entire chapter, Severian has been thinking. Baldanders lost it in the play, and then Severian free associates the rest of the time. So Severian is just, you know, running the tapes. Again, Drotten Roche and I swam in the clammy cistern beneath the bell keep. Again, I replaced Josephina's toy imp with the stolen frog. Ah, that's Thecla's memory. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the context matters. And if I don't think so, probably it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he's he's mixing everything up again. Yeah, yeah. So as he's doing this. So again, I stretch forth my hand to grasp the haft of the axe that would have slain the great Vodalus and so saved a Thecla not yet imprisoned. In other words, if Severian had let that guy kill Vodalus, then Theo wouldn't be, you know, Vodalus's girlfriend anymore, and Thecla wouldn't have been writing letters to her, and she wouldn't mm -hmm. have been imprisoned. Yeah. It occurs to me that this could be the solution, probably is, to Severian's statement that by encountering and saving Vodalus, he set himself on the path to betray the guild. Uh, Severian could have done nothing. He could have let that poor volunteer live and allowed Vodalus to die. And in another timeline, he doesn't do that. And in another timeline, maybe he grows up and dies as a cynical but satisfied enough guild member. Yeah. <laughs> it also kind of goes back to Mark's favorite point about the theodicy and how 
especially in Earth of the New Sun. Everything is turned towards the plan of predestination in some way or another. So mm. who knows? But what does Severian do? The first thing that sets him on the path is he kills a guy. Yeah, and, naturally. Yeah, yeah. So Severian says, again, I saw the ribbon of crimson creep from under Thecla's door, Malrubius bending over me, Jonas vanishing into the infinity between dimensions. I played again with pebbles in the courtyard beside the fallen curtain wall as Thecla dodged the hooves of my father's mounted guard. Ah, yes. Yeah, so even in one sentence, he kind of, he's mixing up memories where he, he yep. looks, he says, okay, that's Thecla. Remember how she dodged the hooves of my father's mounted guard. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever it's been a long time since I've read it, I always think there are way more pronoun shifts like that, yeah. but, but there aren't very many. No, no. A nice jumble of memories, though, between Severian and, and Thecla in that last bit. He says, long after I had seen the last balustrade, I still feared the soldiers of the Autark, the Praetorians. We've already defined a, a balustrade, but it's the, a series of posts with a railing on top. A potential synonym for balustrades can define the edges of a pale, a fenced-off area that is safe and beyond which you are not permitted to go. So Severian has gone beyond the pale. That's mm -hmm. an English term for a very European concept. Eventually, though, he hasn't seen any uh, Praetorians and his attitude changes. He says, I grew contemptuous of them, believing their ineffectiveness to be part of that general disorganization I observed in the Commonwealth so often. <laughs> With or without my help, Vodalus, I felt, would surely destroy such bunglers indeed, could do so now if you would only strike. So this is in line with Severian's sentiment toward the haphazardness of the governance of the Commonwealth, right? Yep. And it's also weird because, and he's going to talk about it here in a second, but yeah. weird that he has that reaction when he also should know now, okay, but wait, the autarchs involved. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I don't, I'm not considering myself a follower of Vodalus anymore. Remember? <laughs> yep. But still, still, but there's still. something about, some, <laughs> well, it's, and, and maybe it's not so much that I like Vodalus, but he, he recognizes something about the society is just not working right. That it, or that it's just, it's too untidy for him, right? The guild actually has a lot of good structure and history and whatnot, but society doesn't, right? Yeah, so right again, exactly. one of those things, he yeah. he finds the good things in a torturing guild. Yeah. Uh, is this, is this Severian as an unreliable narrator? What do you think? I mean, um, is his his contempt for the for the untidiness of the Commonwealth? Uh, no, that, I think he legitimately feels it. Like, I, yeah. whether he's going to follow Vodalus or not, I mean, even the fact that eventually he's going to reform the guild, right? So, right. he hasn't been raised in a world in which he can see sort of clear good and evil, you know, right and wrong is with his own culture, right. just like probably most of us can't with with our own total context. But he still it recognizes something's wrong. Something needs to change. The world is not what it could be. Yeah. So, yeah. So it, as far as unreliable, I don't know that it's so much unreliable as that thing. We always talk about a wolf being naturalistic in terms of mm. perspective that everyone's super enmeshed in their own perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And even now, even though he no longer considers himself a follower of Bodilus, he's sure that Bodilus will win and set all this right. I mean, even the house absolute, let alone the Commonwealth is not run with the order and efficiency that he has come to expect of the oubliette on a bad day. <laughs> What's the deal? <laughs> My, the autarch has put a stranglehold on all travel and trade north of Nessus, and Severian seems to be criticizing that stranglehold for not being absolute enough. 
there's also if you want to you could find a little bit of the the whole thing about the coin was a symbol and symbols made me into what i am by wanting to follow Vodalus, it became something that was actually all about reform and eventually isn't just reform but actually rebirth of the right. thing so all of that is tied up. So even though it's it's self-contradictory because he says he now doesn't follow Vodalus the man anymore, he still follows that instinct that made him yeah. want to Well, yeah, but you know, the thing is, Vodalus never spoke for a moment about bringing justice and order to the Commonwealth. He was more mm -hmm. interested in getting off the planet altogether. Yep. So this And Thea just wanted me, to be an exultant, right? Yeah, Jeez. yeah. Which actually makes me wonder whether this sentiment is Severian himself or Thecla whispering in his ear. Mm, yeah, mm, could very much be both at this point. We don't know how much Thecla was, you know, a justice warrior, <laughs> as, <laughs> as it were. We, you know, and, well, justice as as exultant thinks of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we did. We don't know. We just don't really know a whole lot. I mean, I would think maybe some because she likes to talk philosophy with him, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so I don't know. But Severian has doubts too. Remember that there are first-time readers for this book. Severian has met the Autark. The Autark knew Vodalus's password and he was receiving information from him. Even Severian acknowledges that calling the Autark the master of the Commonwealth armies is as dubious as calling him the master of the Commonwealth. He knows it's the Autark because he has Thecla's memories of him. Mm -hmm. So that suggests to a first-time reader that Vodalus is actually already in charge of the Commonwealth. So why does he hide in the woods? Why does he make war on the Commonwealth? Actually, Severian doesn't ask that, but and, and doesn't seem to care at that point about the northern villages that are suffering from thievery. But still, I ask that question. So Severian proposes another idea. Maybe Vodalus works for the Autark, but that doesn't make sense because Vodalus referred to the Autark as a minion. So Severian goes round and around and around with this puzzle, as we readers often do with puzzles in this book. He tries to convince himself that encountering the Autark was just a dream. And in fact, that is also a method to resolve uh, problems in this book. Just weigh them away. It doesn't matter. But he knows the memory is true. And anyway, quote, the steel was gone. He doesn't have the medal that Vodalus gave him. So his memory of meeting the Autark has to be real. He has physical evidence that of not having the physical ev evidence. This is like, you know, doubting whether he actually met Vodalus in the Acropolis in chapter one, although he didn't have the certainty of it that he seems to have now. And so he went looking for physical evidence of the event. But Severian continues to free associate. Thinking of Vodalus reminds him of the claw. That's the way Severian puts it. And mm -hmm. I suppose there are symbolic veins to mine there. Huh? But I gather that he thought of the Autark as Vodalus's minion. And then he remembers that the Autark told him to go return the claw to the Pelerine. So he takes the claw out of his pocket. And there's a soft light to it now. It's not blazing like in the Man-Apes cave, nor does it have no light like it did in the antechamber. Again, I find this behavior erratic and a puzzle to be solved. Mm, the claw is still weird. Yeah. So he says, though it lay upon the palm of my hand, it seemed to me now a great pool of blue water, purer than the cistern, purer far than the guile, into which I might dive. Though in doing so, I should in some incomprehensible fashion be diving up. Huh. 
The, the cistern is rainwater, and this reminds us again of Severian being saved by the Undyne in the Guile a year and a half or so now, right? And yeah. when he thought he was being thrown down to the bottom of the pool, he was actually diving up, right? So it's a, another weird moment where, I mean, I think we all can see sort of diving into the claw, diving up is, you know, spiritual and possibly mystical thing, but definitely... Uh, definitely some sort of mystical experience, but it's also kind of cool that all of this stuff comes in the middle of him trying to puzzle out like what path should I follow? Right. Like, uh. should I, should I follow the autark? Should, do I believe in Vodalus? Do I, how do I think the relationship between these things are? And then he pulls out this symbol, which gives him a totally different option mm -hmm. and yeah. is so it's, it's a paradox is kind of what he is. I'll be diving into it in the pool in the bottom, but I'll be diving up which is a cool kind of way out of the puzzles is yeah. just not solve the one. Don't answer the question, but you take a left turn. And well, you mind if I inject my own uh, interpretation here? Go for it. It is your podcast. Well, the blue light of the, the claw is the light in, in Aries, uh presence chamber, the same type of light. Mm. So it's like he's diving into the world of the mirrors where you are circumfused to the borders of Bria which yeah. brings you again up into, you know, you are diving up. Yeah. When you dive down, you dive yeah. up. But he puts it back in his boot and moves on. And now it's dawn, and he's following a path through a deep forest, uh, maybe the deepest, densest virgin forest that he's been in so far, like his dream when he passed through Piteous Gate. And although he doesn't say so, the forest where Vodalus was stationed. And he says, the cool fern arches I had seen there were absent here. They are being in the forest at the wall of Nessus. No giant ferns. No giant ferns, yeah. But fleshy-fingered vines clung to the great mahoganies and rain trees, like heteray, I think, turning their long limbs to clouds of floating green and lowering rich curtains spangled with flowers. Uh, a mahogany is a tropical evergreen tree that's native to South and Central America. The vines cling to these tropical trees like Heteray, um, or hyteray. Uh, uh, hyteray is a Greek prostitute or concubine. This passage is sure to be of interest to Mark Aramini since it mirrors the description of the lianas in the Book of the Short Sun as wives of the sleepy trees. Uh, personally, at this time, I presume, to the degree of presume anything, that they are just vines. Yeah, I remember I have a mark here from some other time I read it. It said, Ask Mark. Yep. <laughs> so, something about the vines. Yeah. So he says, birds unknown to me called overhead, and once a monkey who might save for his four hands have been a wizened, red-bearded man in fur spied on me from a fork as high as a spire. Uh, here we have a monkey, monkey in reddish fur looking down, yeah, <laughs> on him from uh, continuing the narrative checks of primates with reddish fur spying on Severian <laughs> that have been associated with Mr. Monkey-Faced Aniri. And I'll tell you, Craig, if Father Aniri can appear as a monkey or baboon in the Lazarus in uh, you know, Shadow of the Torture, then appearing as Rudisend, not a big sleep, just saying. <laughs> I don't know why, but it just makes me think of like, the witches flying monkeys it was sort of like they maybe they're not in himself but <laughs> sent out all these different minions to keep <laughs> yeah. tabs. but but yeah that's the thing like so do we he's think... got, a, so got like a room full of monkeys in the yeah back in yeah I, I have wing. no clue but i mean i i can't imagine that this would actually be father and i mean i i know i've seen some stuff out there where people are like this is one of the appearances of father and i don't 
think so. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, he, he just says that it might have been a wizard, but then he does say, you know, it had four hands, but then in near a, well, yeah, it's a monkey. He's a package. And yeah. Yeah. So, um, and it was far away, so we don't know what he really saw. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's ambiguous. But you you certainly can put this as another Father Neri sighting with just with an asterisk. But I guess all I guess all of them a, have a asterisks. Redford monkeyish or Redford people. Yeah. 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 Uh so um like I said, uh now it's dawn and he's far away from anything, and he finds a place to sit down and sleep in a shady place between quote, two pillar thick roots. And he wraps himself in his fulgen cloak. Sverian says he has an issue with falling asleep, although we don't usually see it in this book. He says, quote, often I have had to hunt down sleep as though it were the most elusive of chimeras, half legend and half air. It's credible, though, the way his brain never seems to turn off or stay in one place. But remember, he hasn't really had a full sleep in three successive nights. He walked all night last night. He slept fitfully the night before and then wandered House Absolute all night with Jonas and, and then alone. And then he got a few hours in the morning and... You know, then his sleep was interrupted by young exultants and their whips in the antechamber the night before. Jonas was hurt pretty badly, so I guess, you know, he was caring for him that night. But as soon as he closes his eyes, he's off to dreamland and seeing Baldander's crazy face attacking. He dreams he's still in the play, apparently, and he's holding Terminus S, but in the dream, it's a little tiny thing, uh, maybe a foot long, like a wand. And instead of the stage... He and the troop are on a narrow parapet. Uh, a parapet is like a, a wall or bulwark of a fortress. Uh, on the side of the wall, he sees, quote, the torches of an army. And on the other side, a sheer drop to a large lake that was and was not the blue translucent gem of the claw. Is this a play of, uh, of him and Baldanders in the puppet show? I think so. Yeah, I think I mean, I think that's yeah, because he's because he does talk about the it's puppet. a narrow parapet, right? And yeah. he looks down mm -hmm. and it's the blue wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like below. Yeah. And so it's reminding him of the dream. It's also a bit like the play that they were just mm -hmm. in and and being in the play kind of literalizes in a lot of ways the dream and it literalizes the whole weird mythological backstory that mm -hmm. was going on too sort of saying all these things are are real at the same time but then the mace crashes down and it it's hard to know what the dream means here for me like to me it seems more like a dream of just saying hey you're you're deeply in the middle of this stuff and a lot of these things are yet to be settled um and that's why you're still fighting and there's dangers all around but as far as what this particular dream is supposed to suggest beyond that he's stressed and in the middle of stuff i'm not really yeah. sure he senses the undines are not far away yeah so yeah. could the undines have been watching in lake the eterna when severian and bald danders fought uh, certainly like the play the herodules are there yeah anyway bald anders brings down the flambeau which severian now perceives as a mace like you said uh, surprisingly the chapter ends there which i think would have been an ideal place to end it but instead Severian wakes up well into the afternoon 
Some flame-colored ants, red and brassy, I suppose, are crawling in a line over his chest. Severian walks for two or three hours through the, quote, noble yet doomed forest. Well, that's interesting. Oh, I guess because of the flood is coming. And then he finds a broader path and walks that for an hour or so. And it's approaching early evening now, and he smells a fire, which he associates with dinner. So he heads for that. And that is really the end. So this chapter called The Hieroduels, all of that stuff happens in about the first page and a half, two pages or so. And the rest of it is wandering and free associating. (laughs) Yeah, so just as far as structure goes, a little bit of a shift that the Hieroduels don't come at the end. They come earlier. At the beginning, that is different. That's that's peculiar for it. And it does seem appropriate for Hieroduels because they go backwards through time, right? right? So they show up at different points. But um, it's much more of a Severian pontificating chapter than you think, which is odd, especially because it starts off with such a sort of violent image of with Baldanders freaking out and then the creatures. But then most of it is him just trying to figure out where he stands in all of this, what he feels, where he thinks he's going, what all these things mean. Yeah, it's a very sort of in the midst of deciding and of needing a way to go. And he's all by himself. And yeah, it's uh yeah, it's a strange chapter. It's this maybe it's just a way to get to the next chapter. I don't know, but it's not quite a hero journey, like cave of despair kind of break, right? Like it's right. like in, in the, the monomyth thing, you always, the hero's journey, there's always like the moment where the hero almost gives up and despairs and takes right. a break and goes off and whatnot. Not quite that. It's, it's something else, but it has that kind of feel of like, we're, we're in the midst of some serious stuff, but we don't quite know what the stakes completely are yet. And Severian doesn't know how he feels about the autark. And oddly enough, things don't really get clarified before the end of claw right in, instead we get wrapped up in something even weirder yeah <laughs> which i mean we know is connected to it but especially on a first read everything else that happens in claw is just weird so you get the play which acts like it should be clarifying all kinds of stuff for you and it doesn't and then it gets mixed up with the with the with a puppet show which you think is going okay so this means that we're going to get some payoff on that puppet show and we're going to get some understanding about why it's important and what it has to do with the undines and blah, 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 blah. Nope. 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 We do know that it, it does show off the final battle with Baldanders in the end. It is kind of, it's the same thing where, where Severian is facing off against Baldanders on a high, well, what did, why, high thing. So, but we still don't know. And we don't think we ever is clear. What do the undines have to do with it? Right. With that particular fight, I don't know, but in, but I do think that, so here's the thing that's weird. Like for Severian to face off against Baldanders, like I had said before, I used to think that it was supposed to be a kind of like, here are two ways that, that humanity was given that could save them. One is technological, which is Baldanders. One is spiritual, which is Severian. And they face off and Severian wins. I, I don't know that that's quite true anymore because it's it seems more like Baldanders is already messed up and, and his way was never going to win. But that's not so, why the, and that's not why the Herodules are helping him anyway. He's yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure what he thought. I, I, I mean, I'm kind of inclined to believe that Baldanders just thought he was going to, that he was just, you know, learning and experimenting because he loved to learn and experiment. I think his plan was that he's testing himself to become either some giant defender of humanity or 
to have you know him be the next stage like he will he will take evolution on himself and technologically mm -hmm. create himself to be something else um and what happens here and it could be all those things at once and what happens though is that he of course doesn't yeah he can't he he loses his humanity basically so so but then for severian to have to fight him that's a good kind of iconographic thing but he's severian's not really fighting against that urge right no it's it's not his thing and so it's not really a battle no, it's very asymmetrical right they're not whatever yeah. severian's path is and whatever bald enders uh path they is, both they should just... be fighting the megatherians it seems like in the dream they should both be squaring off against the megatherians because they both think... hoot about the megatherians i don't think bald enders cares about them. well that's that's what i'm not sure of anymore because like that was the thing with in the play with Nod and Jahi was that Nod slash Baldanders was going to go and keep Jahi from uh, messing up the plan with Meshia, which made me start wondering, well, okay, because of that thing Jonah says about like, you know, do you want to get big to fight them? And so maybe Baldanders was misleadingly thinking he should try to do something like that or, or become bigger in order to survive in the oceans, but not do it by falling prey to the to the megatherians who take you over or or get inside your head i'm not not really sure but it is weird that severian has to fight baldanders because it doesn't seem to me like they're actually opposed they're they're kind of yeah. maybe symbolically opposed but they're not they're each trying to i think they're each trying to evolve humanity just with different means and methods and which which are not uh contradictory right either. yeah they're not yeah it's not like you can you can't do one or the other and that's, that's why i said it makes sense for them to kind of square off symbolically because they're different but it's not like one of them has to live and the other must die in, in right, order yeah, to do yeah. it so that's why that that conflict is still weird to me like why is that such a big moment um in sword and and why is that i mean it's a it's a cool image it's a cool mm -hmm. yeah scene but I, I, yeah, I'm just not. I, I don't well, know. I'm, I'm kind of being thrown the, with this read. I'm a little bit thrown as far as Severian's antagonists entirely. Mm -hmm. When We're you first read about this, and, and, and for a lot of people still, this is, you know, we hear about Rabia and Erebus and Scylla who will uh, come out and we're told at Morwenna's execution they're going to come and crawl across the the, the land and yeah. they come out of the sea and across the land and fight and then we get from jonas that's not even possible mm -hmm. um and you know and then you realize okay the new sun's going to come with a flood it's not going to affect creatures under the sea it's kind of a strange mm -hmm. Yeah, just, I, I've ceased to. If, if you try to act now, I, you know, I might a lot of people still, you know, see the Megatherians as the great enemies that he is is fighting, and it's reasonable to come up with that because the Askeans are certainly in their mm -hmm. servitude. Yep. But at the same t token, it's you know, again, the Megatherians don't seem to be at cross purposes. I mean, Jeterna is the only real way they manifest directly in relationship to Severian, right? And, and she's, she's kind of fallen for him. So there's she saves you know, him, yeah. 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 So it's 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 odd. I do feel like though that I've got some different feelings about Baldanders and a few different options for him at least. But but yeah, still exactly why he has to square off 
against him. I mean, like I said, I get it symbolically, but it's not the ultimate climax. And it keeps being presented in these dreams as if like, this is where you're going to have your, your big face off in the end. But yeah. it's not, it's a step. It's one among many different conflicts that he has, but it's, it's not the big one. So, but it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, Akia is a bigger actual you know, antagonist, conflict, yeah. actual antagonist in yep. this. Yeah. Yep. Well, okay. So once again, Severian has wandered around without actually doing much. And that's the way it is from several chapters. I don't think, I'm not sure that there are a lot of chapters, so many in the rest of the book as there are in Claw the Conciliar, where Severian just kind of wanders around. And uh, so all these chapters are a virtual mind to pull out meaning. And so I'm sure that other people have ideas about what this chapter means, why it's here, what we're getting out of it. And I certainly hope that they will come with their comments and complaints and questions to our Facebook group or the Reddit or to Twitter or Instagram or Patreon or the Slack channel, all these things. And until you hear from us next, hopefully we will have been found by the search party. And uh, <laughs> until then, may the Moria favor you. Bye, everyone. trying to think because it's 
Yeah, we'd have to decide on something though, because we don't want to, <laughs> or we could just start being mean and be like, we're not going to talk about the last page of the chapter unless, <laughs> yeah. oh, unless you sign up for Patreon. That would be, <laughs> that would just, that'd just be irritating to do too. Well, that's what the, the, um, HP Lovecraft, uh, literary podcast does. Oh, really? Yeah. You're like, for most of them, you only get one half of the story oh, and then weird. you have to be a subscriber to get the rest. Wow. I didn't realize that. That's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. I just, yeah, I just don't, I don't like that. That, that just doesn't feel right. But like, <laughs> if you want to see the rest, you got to pay. Yeah, come on in. Well, it's kind of a little carny eye trick. Are you ready to roll? Yeah, I hit it. So we can, oh, you did? Oh, we can oh, get going. Oh, waiting on me, waiting on me, waiting on me. Let's play guitar for me. <laughs> Are you going to do some background music for this episode? Yeah, just nice. <laughs> <laughs> just... No, I'm just trying to play more often. Oh. Plunk a little more often. All right. Yeah, my, my guitar life goes in and out. Like, there'll be periods where I'll play a ton and learn a bunch of new songs and have them memorized. And then, <laughs> well, you have to, then, now you, then you have to go out on the street and play them and put, a, I know. Put, I never put on did. a hat or that's, something. That's and one then thing you... I've never, I should sometime, but I've never really played in public or with bands or anything. It's always just been for me. I don't think we have any new on the play in there just ignore that <laughs> good okay. and then there's only five chapters of claw left after that there are 31 really? 31 claw chapters that's the that is a fast i didn't realize that yep. that's a really yep oh you're back oh, and you're back yeah okay. i mean yeah. i'm somewhat jealous of of mark that he's so it managed to uh capture you uh, with with his uh, point of view, but um, so what do you think about the, that scene that he that he hangs so much on the play about? That cannot be in Kanag's book of the New Sun. No, so I do think like I actually feel like there's a little bit of Wolf suggesting that I don't know why, but Talus does seem to know more about the world than. Mm -hmm he lets on yeah. um, because the whole Frankenstein thing is about it's, it's a kind of awareness of layers of history that no mm -hmm. other character really has. That's right? true. And, and he has a conversation when he first meets him, he talks about all of the things from the past that still persist that we yeah. still encounter. Yeah. So if for whatever, that. I don't know exactly why that is, but um, I do think that that might be a way that Wolf can, could cheat and be like, well, Talos has some kind of connection to either call it prophecy or call it time travel mm -hmm. or whatever. Like he, for some reason he does that. So, but here's the other thing. I actually take seriously that the play was written, not planning for that to be a literal scene that would happen later. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's great for Mark's argument that yes, Wolf did go in and I think intentionally write that scene in earth to match what happens at the end of the play. I still don't get the sense that when he was, and, and I was going to say, if I was, if I was doing an official like argument analysis, that is a weak part of Mark's argument where it's like, yes, you're right. Now that everything is done, I think that Wolf making the end of the play fit 
bringing that up in in Earth of the New Sun is Wolf saying that he intended this play to work basically like Marx saying mm. it does. But I don't think originally it was literal. I think I think now the whole point was in that scene is to have um, Baldanders be seen as getting frustrated and angry and breaking out. I I do think that Jahi was supposed to be, if not Jaterna herself, at least something about the Megatherians and the Undines. Like that's, I do see her role as that throughout the whole thing, like from the very beginning. So yeah. I, for me, well, I'm kind of fishy. The thing about Jaterna is my, my big argument is that Jahi is Agia, but I'd be more I'll bring this up in the summary. Yeah. But I think that there is a sense in which um, Ajia is Severian's mother in a way I cannot put my finger on. Uh, and the, the way I'm thinking about mothers in these books, it would not surprise me at all. So just, <laughs> well, because because in a way that's not like like Dorcas, like like yeah, he become they kind of he has a connection with Dorcas, and she's definitely loves him uh, because she's his grandmother, right? Mm -hmm. But Severian falls for Agia immediately, mm -hmm. yeah. in, in much the same way that he falls for for Thecla. Yeah. And and well, while she's obviously dangerous to him, yeah. right? And he's still, yeah. So yeah, he cannot stop. So yeah, I think I think I'm right. I think I'm right that she is uh, kind of his grandmother. But I think um, there must be a way in which she is very much his mother. And I don't know what to how to nail that down just yet. But I I can see I can see it all there. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. No, I yeah. I mean. Yeah, because I still don't know where Ajia fits into the kind of whole mythology of mm -hmm. the background of the story, or if she's. I mean, oh, I you mean, should read my. You know, oh, you, I mean, you would take. You would like my. I, I don't know if you read my 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 written. Text not yet. Not yet. Mm -hmm. But um, but, yeah, I've got when when he's walking. Um, you know, he, he's uh, in that in that whole section with him and Dorcas and Ajia, uh, that you know, he's he's got his two grandmothers with him, and, and you know, they're like two separate sides of his nature, one in tending toward resurrection and the other toward death and darkness. And so, well, if that is the case, then you've got a very strong Oedipal thing there with him. Oh yeah, oh, definitely too, is. So. I mean, there's a, mm. there's that interview from in thrust where uh, he says, why don't you describe this variant? And one of the, and he, after he physically described it, he says, he's very much scarred by his, being separated from his mother at a young mm -hmm. age and and so he's he's attracted to women who tend to suggest his mother um large women thecla's uh i mean uh jolinta's large breasts um and women who and he says women who act as guides like dorcas and agia but of course he falls yeah. for agia before she can ever act as a guide mm. um so that's why yeah it would it wouldn't yeah there's definitely sense to it. And so anyway, and, bring yeah. that up. That's, that's all for the summary. You shall see. Cool. 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 But anyway, yeah. But so yeah, that like, my, I got the feeling Mark was kept going back to that scene as much for expediency and as much for him saying, look, Wolf meant it because he act, later on did it. And I'm, 
And that's the thing where I keep going back like, okay, I agree with you, yeah, but that's <laughs> see, not the way to make the argument. See, no, no, I you disagree. Know, I think, you know, I think, yeah, he Wolf put in things that Severian could recognize from the play. And of course that whole, that, that scene where he's, um, where uh, the Contessa, you know, looks up and sees mm -hmm. Severian. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely there. But I think Wolf is, is, um, that's, that's, I think that's Severian's unreliability yeah. uh, carrying out there, which but what uh, I, of course that's just the one kind of thing that, you know, just like more, um, you know, the, whether Moena is guilty or not, that's just the kind of thing that there will never be a consensus of because yeah, it's not. so yeah. ambiguous. Yeah. But no, what the, the main thing I agree with Mark about is just the overall thrust of the play and how, how that stuff lines up like the, yeah. but I, I would not make the argument the way he's been making it by, saying Jalenta is X like that that is textual yes but because I want to stick with New Sun just the four books itself first yeah yeah and it's still got to make that same it's got to do that without it's got it's got to have a have and, a weight to it that way yeah, yeah yeah I would I would say you got to make the argument just for the four books then Earth of the New Sun could confirm things but well, I must you say, still have to say it's in yeah, does that make my, sense like it's in my perspective is books. is is uh better than Mark's for that so Okay, let I mean get this. All right, so you just did, did we start? Bonus randomness for patrons only. Well, what have you been reading? <laughs> we can do that for this one. It'd be easy <laughs> to throw one there. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, Jack Cady, um, Stephen um, McDonald had suggested that one. I don't know him. It? And it says, hey, you got to read this one. So I, I haven't gotten very deep into it, but it's sitting by my bed. So, but I could, if I knew I had, was going to have to do something, I would always have something to talk about. That's cool. I got a copy of a, something called Cheap Thrills, The Amazing, Thrilling, Astonishing History of Pulp Fiction by Ron Goulart. Goulart? I'm not, I'm not sure, it's but it was good. written in yeah. the 70s, I think. But it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's not, it's not just, sci-fi fantasy but it is really just going through all the old like you know stuff for boys and then in the mm. 40s once they started doing a little bit more um it became more like pulp once they were definitely doing like sex and violence kind of kind of oh. angle on things where it was not really detective stories not really noir anymore but just sort of excuse for sort of low rent <laughs> kinds <laughs> of just really like exploitation type stories um, but that opened the door to a lot of, a lot of other publishers to get yeah. stuff. So honestly, it's strangely, it's kind of an interesting story because the sci-fi stuff might not have had quite the market and the, the setup for getting in touch with, with those publishers, if it hadn't been for some of the like soft porn and like bad, violent things. So it's kind of interesting, huh. but, um, but yeah, that, and then what else have I been reading? Um, a collection, a speculative Japan. There are a couple of selection, collections of translated stories by Japanese writers, yeah. sci-fi well, fantasy writers. I've been doing more writing than reading lately. Uh, I've been writing, yes, because I, you know, I was thinking, you know, what happened? I, I need to, you know, you had this idea we could do like do a summary mm -hmm. of, and saying I should probably, first place I've lost uh, most of my scripts from the 
from the beginning from all the computer mm. changes I've done. So I, but I said, um, I was saying, well, I should probably get started on that or else I'm going to have a lot to do and I'll just never do it. So I started mm. on that. And then at the same time, I, I was reading uh, a, a wolf uh, short story. I, I had bought this book. Um, from uh, where did I? Oh yeah, I found it at the Half Price Books at um, the, the flagship here in Dallas. Uh, it's um, David G. Hartwell's Sword and Sorcery mm -hmm. uh, anthology. And it has a Gene uncollected Gene Wolfe story on it. Uh, it was originally, it's a Robert G., uh, E. Howard uh, uh, homage because it was originally oh, written cool. for a, a, a Robert E. Howard um, anthology mm -hmm. uh, by Texas writers was the idea. Oh, so, cool. so Wolf kind of does, it gives it a, a, a Western title, Six from Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And, and, and the, yeah, and he packs in every kind of little motif from a... Uh, from a Howard uh, novel and or novel story or whatever. And he, uh, and, but it's very short. It's very short. And he, um, it's, it's, it has kind of a, a vague sci-fi sense to it. So that's pretty cool. cool. Somebody speaking of Howard, somebody mentioned, or I think it was, it may have been Samuel Delaney on Facebook. Um, someone who I had never read before. Um, and actually didn't recognize his name, but I think it was Kurt Wagner or Wagner, mm -hmm. um, who had been one of the first uh, Howard collectors and editors, but also wrote a whole bunch of stuff himself. And I'm trying, it surprised me how I didn't recognize the guy's name at all. And I'm like, because I went through a serious Howard period. I'm like, I must have forgotten it or something. Um, and had a character named Kane, not Solomon Kane, but a different mm -hmm. Kane. Yeah. Who, oh, um, <laughs> Yeah, a different guy, different, different K N E, K E N E. But um, I don't think he shouldn't be allowed to do that. I, I don't know. I mean, back. I think when he was doing this, that you know, everybody was stealing from everything else. So, but yeah, yeah when I first saw that, it's like his character Kane. I'm like, that wasn't his. That was, but not Solomon <laughs> Kane. Different Kane. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I'm tracking down some of his things to read now. That's kind of uh, the next thing. But, but yeah. anyway, so I was reading that, and I said, well, you know, I should probably go ahead and just put down all my thoughts about all of them both side, yeah. you know, short stories. So that's what I, I started. I, I just broke them up. I listed all of them, put headings for each of them. And then I've been adding summaries. For oh, that's cool. Well, that's, you're going to have your own version of Mark's thing then. I, I don't tell Mark. <laughs> I'll, be, <laughs> I'll be saying, stay in your lane. That's cool. By the way, if you do, if you have lost the summaries to some of them, I mean, the nice thing now is that there's so all the free transcription things now we can easily just get well, maybe you should try that yeah you know. so um well that's cool yeah that's pretty cool well that's a little extra 10 minutes or so <laughs> <laughs> we can actually put that in there so. if we do end up doing it there you go guys we're going to start okay, yeah. adding we'll just, just a little bit extra this is we're going to have stuff like that where we talk about what we're going to do yeah. when we uh when we offer that so. it'll be better i promise, I promise. Just, we're, we're trying to think we've been it is a it is true we do need to be more active on patreon because we try to do the borges stories and that's good and all but we prep more so maybe if we do a little bit extra every time at least that'll have something that we can regularly put up there right 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 i make mean it we, a little more worth your eye we, we appreciate I mean, we put, 
we so, probably put in more work into any Moorhead story than we do for any chap any single chapter. So yeah, yeah. I feel like the bar's higher too because yeah, it's like come on, fork out your two dollars, man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that. We still have more Borges stories to do, though. Definitely want to do more. That's for yeah, sure. but at least we'll do this. No, me. no, I got. We have to complete my dream of doing them all. So yeah, every story, every essay, every poem. It'll be the definitive podcast. So even the ones that haven't been translated yet. <laughs> That's right. We're going to do them in Spanish. 